Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got uh, myself, Ron Hayes, new host, Drew Hamilton in the far north. How are you, Drew? I'm doing well. Glad to be back. Are you getting any sleep at all? No, no. This this kid's, uh, <laughs> we covered on the last episode, we had, had a new baby and fortunately, uh, well, it might pay dividends later on. She's on a, a Aurora season schedule. So up all night, sleep all day. So next winter, uh, that could really, really work out well for us. <laughs> yeah, could, as long as she can adjust. <laughs> name name the band. Name the band? Yeah, come on, name Which the band? band. Night Ranger? What, ba- That's what, what we are we talking up all about? Night. Up all sleep night, sleep all day. Sleep all day. Up kiss. All night, sleep all it's day. Kiss. <laughs> Am I wrong? Is it? I. It's, it's kiss. You're positive. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It is ninety nine. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent. Sorry, that was sidetracked. Sorry. <laughs> We're already getting into the trivia stuff. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of doing it. <laughs> all right. So we've got a guest that we've been working on for about 18 months. Every time we see each other in uh, Western Wyoming, we talk about doing this podcast. And the reason that we have waited is because we wanted Mike to be on with the, with the video stuff that Brandon does, but Brandon and your last name, Navarro, Navratil, Navratil. I should have asked before. So close. So I'd like to welcome Brandon Nevertill to the podcast. Brandon, thanks for coming on and thanks for being patient, whether you wanted to be or not. We greatly appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. A pleasure to be here. I'm excited to be here. And as I understand, you and Jason just shot together recently, correct? That we did. Yeah, we before I, everybody got before everybody got kicked out of the park. Oh yeah, and it got changed for a year to two years to come or however long it takes them to repair the roads. But we had a fantastic time and it was beautiful to be up there. And we were hanging out on a pretty good, pretty good thing. It was adorable what we were hanging out with. So that was fantastic to get to hang out and cross paths. Have I seen it yet, Jason? Uh, Yeah, you've seen some of it. It, I mean, it's not a secret. I've posted some stuff from it already and it was a badger den. Um, And it was just a great, it was a great opportunity. Um, you know, and it was what was so great about it. I actually had a few people reach out to me just real quick because I think this is important to talk about a little bit. Um, we talk about ethics, right, all the time with the wildlife photography stuff. And it's really important to understand where that line is and when what you're doing to try to get an image or video is interfering with the behavior of the animal, then you, it's pretty clear you've crossed the line, in my opinion. Right. So if what you're doing is is changing the behavior of the animal or affecting the way that they would normally behave, then you're either too close or you're, you're there too much or whatever it is, you're pressuring too much, whatever the situation. Uh, this is a scenario where this badger seemed very, very used to people. And it was in, she had made her den very close to a main road. And um, everybody there was very respectful. And at least while I was there, and I think Brandon would agree with this, um, the opportunity was incredible. And she was just doing her thing and raising her, raising her cub and, you know, trying to do what she could to go out and hunt and play. And um, she was very, um, she was on the clock, it felt like. 
she'd come out about the same time within 20 minutes or so every day for about the same amount of time. And she'd put the cub back in the den and go out and do some hunting for a while and disappear and come back with the, you know, the ground squirrel or whatever. But anyways, it was just an incredible opportunity. Um, but it is, it is a good reminder when we have those opportunities to not, not um, push the issue and not, you know, pressure the animals and make sure that we give them their space. But that was awesome. And it was fun hanging out with Brandon. I got to meet one of his best friends and um, we just got to hang out and BS and catch up and take, and take advantage of that incredible opportunity. And I'm sure if you were as close as he was for images for stills, you probably killed it with the video, correct? Yeah. AK is never a bad thing. That's for sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it's funny how that all went down. Cause we spent a number of days there. I'd say, you know, taking a, a fair amount of my friend's vacation. Then I was showing him around and, you know, asking him to be patient and wait at this den, knowing it was such a rare opportunity and using the camera and, uh, luckily the last morning that I was able to spend with it, the kit was out for like 20 minutes playing with mom, which hadn't quite happened as far as when I was there. And we're talking like eight hours or more waiting over a couple of different days. And so driving by on the way to go look for a woodpecker, seeing that, uh, everybody was out as far as photographers and that the kit was out, it was time to like pull over and finally take advantage of what I'd been waiting the prior few days for. And it was, it was phenomenal. It was like icing on the cake after all that waiting to finally get some incredible behavior. Yeah, it was, I haven't looked at the uh, footage yet because I've been editing other projects, but uh, I know it, yeah, it went really well. So I've never, I've never gotten to spend any time with, with badgers in the wild uh, like that. Uh, so we don't, we don't have them up here. Is it, is it something you guys run into frequently? I mean, you know, as far as like the ecosystem, I've spent a lot of time with being Yellowstone and the Tetons and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. I'd say that they're around do you get a chance to, to spend time with a den like that, especially in the proximity we were able to with her tolerance to the road and people? Uh, no, I, it, it was quite a rare opportunity, actually, for the proximity, especially, but then also her tolerance. And of course, the priority is not to disturb her behavior and disturb the kit's behavior uh, when it's coming out. So that particular opportunity was very special. And I'd say, you know, I've, I could count the number of dens that I've filmed over the 12 years I've been in the area and you know, it's on one hand. So yes, you see them. If you go out looking for them, can you find them, you know, but not on like a, you know, a daily basis by any means, you know, maybe a seasonal basis, things like that. But the opportunity with the den was particularly special where we were hanging out. And there's been a couple of those opportunities over the last few years. There was a den in the Lamar. Then there was another den um, close to tower junction. Hmm. And so, you know, they they are there. There's a lot of ground squirrels in Yellowstone, a lot of mostly Uena ground squirrels. So there's plenty of, you know, food base for the badgers. So they are they're pretty prolific. Um, but yeah, the getting them right next to the road like that, or or in an elevated position, or at least close to eye level position, is, you know, that doesn't happen every day. So when you get a chance, I mean, we have badgers at just about every prairie dog town in eastern Wyoming has got at least one badger family on it. Hmm. But it's a little bit different situation because over here they're hunted. And so they're really skittish and almost almost completely nocturnal unless it's cool. Yeah. Well, no, but, in, 
Sorry, go ahead. sorry, Drew. Just to, no, I was just, just making to... a note to. Sorry, I was just making a note to do some uh, some badger trivia in the next uh, next trivia rounds. Nice, nice. I even put a little bit in a story um, when I posted a little bit of stuff there. So I posted some video on the Wild and Exposed page not too long ago. So um, yeah, be paying paying be paying attention. Hopefully, you guys paid attention. I actually looked at the stats on that. I think we had about three hundred people respond, and about a third of the people got it right. And the question I asked was, what do they, what do you call a baby badger, right? Is it a kit? Is it a, Oops. is it a pup? Is it a cub? It, you know, so anyways, little, uh, little trivia there. I actually, and I actually, go ahead. a lot of people use different, they're almost, some of them or a couple of those are almost interchangeable. There's one they that's are. scientifically correct, but right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're what is they're, it? Uh, well, just might as well talk about it, right. So the the the, <laughs> the males are called boars, and the females are called sows, and the and the babies are called cubs. So it's right along with the with the bears, right? So, um, but yeah, just another side note, right? It was interesting. Um, get ran into Kate and Adam Rice while I was there as well, and um, it's always fun to catch up with those guys. They've been on the show a few times, and they have a friend, um, Dave Shumway. Um, who was involved in a badger research project there in the park. And apparently, I didn't know this, but it's actually one of the most densely populated badger areas in the whole country is right there in, in that area in Yellowstone. So there are quite a few of them around. And if you're really paying attention, looking for them and know what time of day to look and all that kind of stuff and where to look, you know, because they like, you know, preferable different little areas of habitat and that. But there, there's quite a few. Matter of fact, I have a really good friend, Bill Allard, we've talked about many times and I think he said over his trip, he was there a week before he photographed five or six different badgers while he was there. So, but yeah, and they're incredible, man. I'm just telling you, they're one of my favorite animals. Um, the more I, time I spend with them, the more I just am intrigued by their behavior. Um, they've always had this demonization, I think, you know, as a, as a, you know, a mean, fierce, ferocious animal that, you know, would attack and, and just like normal, like most things that we learn as we get older and spend time with critters, they're actually very, very fun, uh, very playful. Um, those claws, they use them mainly for digging. I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to make one mad or corner one for sure. Um, but other than that, they're very, very playful. And um, it's really enjoyable to sit there and watch them and what they do and their behaviors. So, yeah, again, it was just an op awesome opportunity. So we've got Brandon with us tonight. And that was a great encounter you guys had. And if you look on brandon's reel so if you go to instagram go to inspire wild media he put out a couple reels here lately and you'll be able to see a little bit of that badger behavior you know in uh in his highlight reel but these reels are incredible and you're primarily correct me if i'm wrong brandon primarily like northwest wyoming south southwest montana um videographer correct is that fair to say yeah, I would, I would definitely, that's fair to say. Uh, I'm trying to venture out more to underwater realm and, uh, of course, around the world into a variety of ecosystems. But uh, at the moment, the foundation has definitely been the Yellowstone ecosystem in and around Wyoming and Montana. And throw in a little bit of the Indian Ocean and some whale activity and some underwater stuff, too, you know, just uh, <laughs> so between the... Just for fun. Yeah, you know, just for fun. <laughs> But yeah, primarily it's been the Rocky Mountain habitat so far, but we'll expand beyond that quite a bit coming up. On your reel, it was crazy because we go from bears and badgers and elk and, you know, crossing the snake and this mist or 
you know, this reservoir or that. And then there's a blue whale. I'm like, that <laughs> is so it's like Monty Python. It's now it's time for something completely different. Yeah, it was. So uh, how did you start? How did you start that? Uh, so, you know, for the real specifically, uh, I was going for like a seasonal progression from a little bit of winter through spring, summer into fall. And I put the whales in the summer section using some type of uh, drone footage and things to do progressions through the seasons into the water and then into the ocean. And, you know, with the limiting time that I edited that video, I was hoping to put some more scenics to really tell more of a story of going from the mountain habitat to the ocean and then underwater. But yeah, starting that was just a lifelong goal and something that you just research where you allowed to get in the water with this animal and this species and were you able to swim with it which was specifically my goal to be able to spend some time underwater uh, as opposed to just being on a boat and seeing it from the surface and so there are only a few places around the world to do that and put in the time to save up money and go on an expedition and shoot uh, and was fortunate enough to be able to find one uh, the very last day which was incredible the last yeah. day of how many? Six yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. Good question. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> yeah, six days on the ocean. And uh, there were oh, reportedly a number of them in the area. And this has been something I've been thinking about and dreaming about for 20 plus years, 25 plus years. And uh, two days before I arrived on the other side of the world, they had all disappeared, um, which was pretty heartbreaking. But the opportunity you know, to get in the water with such an animal is very difficult to do. It's kind of like pursuing the snow leopard, although they're becoming, you know, um, more accessible, shall we say. And so, you know, it was an, it was a thing that could have taken me five years or more to get the right moment to be underwater in decent proximity and good, you know, clear water with the animal. Um, but I was lucky enough to have it happen on the very last day of the trip, which was phenomenal. Yeah. Six days. Take us, take us through how the whole encounter went down. Like, so you'd been there an agonizing five days already, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then like, what were, then boom, there it was, or were you searching for it? Or let's, let's hear the the deets. (laughs) Yeah. Like how does that all happen? Right. So the emotional roller coaster, I'm sure. Oh, especially for someone that comes from the mountains and is not comfortable in the water. You guys, I feel like a, like a like a frog out of water if I'm anywhere near the ocean and it's like a challenge being so adapted to the mountains and the uh, the treed habitats to get in the water is a process for sure for me and then to be able to swim with most species of whales you're looking at free diving instead of scuba diving so because you have to get in and out of the water so quickly and you have to change your depth so quickly uh, that you don't have time to have a tank on and you know, sit in one spot and hope that the whale's there because whales are often moving. You know, this is scenario and species specific, but often, at least with the blue whale, you're free diving. And I, of the number of challenges I've experienced photographing and filming in the wild, uh, I haven't experienced anything as challenging as holding your breath to be able to uh, get the right imagery and, you know, make sure that you don't pass out or make sure you can get to, uh, it's just like an, an incredible challenge to jump off a boat. So, you would ride out from shore like an hour on these very basic boats because uh, it's essentially like a third world country. It's not too developed. And you're on these old fishermen boats and you ride an hour out into the ocean and you get to these certain locations where there might be a canyon where the ocean's, you know, several thousand feet deep, where these whales like to hang out and feed. And you basically just sit on the surface 
and you look as far as you can and you look for a blow, you know, when they're taking a breath and then you try and get to that area as soon as you can. And, and there are ethics to ways you approach the whale and um, to not disturb their behavior and what angle you approach the whale from and things like that. And it, so it's very difficult. And with an animal the size of a blue whale, even their slow swimming speed is very fast for us as humans. And so they're really only in one location where you can view them for basically like 10 to 15 seconds. And then they're already out of view by the time you get there. And that's really clear, as far as I'm told, really clear water. So you basically follow the progression of where it's taking breaths at the surface and hope that you're in proximity to one of those breaths where you can jump off the boat and, you know, be close enough to be able to actually see the animal before it disappears into the blue. And it's, it's amazing how like a submarine sized animal just disappears into the mist, essentially. So, you know, you cruise around, I mean, we're talking like six hours, you're out in the sun and cruising around looking for these blows and then you can find an animal and then you might follow it. Like we followed this one animal for two hours, uh, but didn't have an opportunity to jump off the boat. Didn't even have a chance to get it out because by the time we would get to the area where it was taking its breath, it would already be gone. And so you just kind of have to time it where you think it's going to surface and then jump off the boat and try and time it where the whale will swim by you. So you're not uh, disturbing it essentially. So, and the, the people that are taking you out are, these are, these are uh, local fishermen or there is this, is ecotourism kind of a, a new thing there? How, how's this, uh, how's this working into their, their local economy? Ecotourism is a new thing there and they are using a lot of local fishermen. This is kind of like one of their off seasons per se and that they, um, makes you know a decent income doing that in comparison to fishing and so essentially yeah they're like local experts on the ocean often out there fishing and you're in that boat you know helping that area with local ecotourism that's developing in the area exactly yeah it's like a it's a wild adventure you guys i tell you like riding out on these very basic boats to the middle of nowhere i mean the engine would stop working sometimes and then he'd be in the back and you know, it's a language I can't understand at all. And I've tried to, you know, learn a couple of words, but he'd be back there trying to fix the, fix the engine sometimes. And you're out in the middle of the ocean. And I, with my personal relationship with the water, that's not very good. Learning how to free dive at the same time as, you know, getting in the water with a massive animal, if you're lucky enough to be that close and then dealing with these basic boats in the middle of nowhere and you're cruising around trying to respectfully approach the animal. That's, moving as, I don't know, you know, three to five knots at its slowest speed, which is just very fast for us to swim. So it's like, a, it's a journey to follow the animal, get alongside it, approach it slowly or be in front of it and like slowly get in the water and allow it to swim by you and hope that it's close enough to see. And uh, well, I was very fortunate the last day I was out there uh, to be able to have that type of uh, opportunity and experience and I'm looking to do it again. So, so Brandon, I know most of the time you're filming, you're filming with a red. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your setup for this situation. Were you using your red? Did you have an <laughs> underwater housing for it? I mean, what, how are you set up? This particular situation, I was keeping it really light. Uh, this being the first trip that I was doing there and it was more like a scouting trip. It was more, uh, learn stuff about the country, learn stuff about the culture, see the process and how it goes down. It was my first free diving trip and only my third trip to the ocean ever. So it was more like a, an experience to really learn how the process works. 
And so at that time I brought GoPros <laughs> and uh, was using the, the GoPro 7 or I had two of them or three of them and was utilizing those to keep it light and easy and really work on my free diving capabilities, which were zero prior to that trip. And uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> learning that process and only done 15 scuba dives or so up until that. So I was just using GoPros at that time, but had uh, developed an expedition to go back with a proper underwater set with a, a different camera than the red, uh, the Blackmagic Pocket 6K. And I have a housing for that. I was going to take that underwater so it's like light enough decently light enough for free diving where the dome's not too big where you can swim with it but still big enough to you know be a wide angle to be able to capture an animal that that massive so that's right. the new and improved setup over the gopros the new improved gopro yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd say <laughs> being nature and wildlife photographers we all end up off the good at some point and we've just picked up a new sponsor here at Wild and Exposed. It's Zolio, and they offer a satellite texting device. It's a reasonable cost, and the service is pretty reasonable, and you can buy different plans. The three plans that they offer is they have a $20 plan that basically gives you 25 messages through the course of a month. They also have a medium range plan, which is 250 messages for $35 a month. And lastly, they have the unlimited plan, which is what I use, it's $50 and, and unlimited messages. Ron, Jason, and myself have been using it for about a month. Actually, I've been using it for almost a year now, and it's been very helpful because I end up shooting in places off the grid a lot. And it's just nice to be able to contact family and just let them know, hey, I'm okay. Shoot's going well. Having a good time. See you soon. One of the best things about this device is it has an SOS feature. So if you get into trouble and you are off the grid, you can still reach help. It's super simple to use. You basically just use an app on your phone which connects to the Zolio device. And at that point, it's really just like text messaging, only you're doing it through the Zolio app. It's two-way, so you can send a message out and somebody can send a message back. To learn more about the Zolio device, go to our website, click on the sponsors link, which is at wildandexposed.com. At the top, you'll see sponsors. Click on that. You will see a link that goes right to the Zolio website to learn more. And then you can also check out the partner deals that we have. We have an affiliate program with them, which we will get a percentage of every sale of every device. So you can buy that right from that link on that page. And then also when you set up service on the device, they will waive the $20 activation fee if you use a code when you set up your device. And that code is wild exposed, W-I-L-D-E-X-P-O-S-E-D. -E so when you set up your device, you enter that code, the $20 activation fee is waived and you'll be on your way. So, and what kind of, the, the, you're obviously doing with this, this with, uh, with GoPros on this mission, but for your next mission. So I'm thinking about these big giant whales and I'm thinking about focal length is what I'm, I'm getting at here. And potentially they're coming like by you like a train kind of thing. So like, <laughs> but then when they're close, they're, they're your whole field of view. Like what, how do you, how do you, how do you capture something like that with a, with a, what's kind of field of view are you looking at? Yeah. So I, there's like two kind of standard lenses. There's this, uh, the Canon uh, lens, some, you could use an 18 to 35 Canon, uh, but that's pretty far out. You'd, I can't remember the focal length of the Canon specifically. I think it's eight to 15. Uh, but mm -hmm. the, I have a, 
uh, one that's decent comparatively to that and half the price is the Tokina 10 to 17 millimeter fisheye. And that's the one I have that goes on that. And like, you got to research, you know, with the fisheye lens and the focal length and also the dome on the housing, are you going to get any, uh, you know, matter on the sides, things like that. Any of the housing going to encroach in on your field of view, things like that. But yeah, 10 to 17 millimeter is the one that I have set up. But yeah, for that specific species as well, right? So like, you know, obviously macro underwater is a whole different thing. And then, you know, if you're with sharks or rays, uh, but whales specifically, something that I'm passionate about. Yeah, the 10 to 17 should, uh, Tokina fish eye should be fantastic. Well, especially blue whale. I mean, that's a, that's a different ball game than, I mean, you could film a herd of caribou or you could film one blue whale and you've got the same field of view basically that you need to have <laughs> yeah and you still have to be like you know so close i don't know you know 40 feet 30 feet 20 yeah, feet close. you know ideally like it's a, it's yep. a completely different ballpark underwater than it is on land you know yeah and always you lose course, so much light hmm. lose so much light every foot you're further away from them so brandon you got to tell us about the actual encounter sorry we never even we haven't heard about the actual encounter. Yeah, you saw one. We get it. But now, come on, man. So let's get into the details. <laughs> <laughs> so the day before on the fifth day of this trip, I we followed this one animal for two hours, didn't get in the water with it. Because, again, when you're seeing these animals take a breath and you jump off the boat, the animal's already gone from where, you know, you saw it take a breath. Unless you're there within eight seconds of it being at the surface, by the time you get there, the animal's already in a new spot. So you really have to be very close to where this animal surfaces to have a chance to jump off the boat. Because again, based on their swimming speed, the clarity of the water, they're only in one visual spot for roughly 15 seconds at most, if they're moving slowly. And so this being the fifth day, we followed it, jumped off the boat three times. Now, the boat that I was on, there's four people on this tiny boat plus the driver and two people jump off of each side of the boat. And the whale is going to be on only one side of the boat. And two out of the three times I jumped off the boat, I was on the opposite side uh, from the whale. So I'd have to swim around the back end of the boat because the boat will keep moving. You swim around the back end. And those first two times, uh, the whale had already moved out of visual field for me by the time I get there. So basically, you're sitting on the edge of the boat. You have your fins. You have your mask. No tank. You hold your breath. You jump off the boat in the middle of the ocean and you essentially free dive or and snorkel towards this animal as it's swimming by, you know, at a casual distance. But uh, often you don't find that people bother such an animal of a massive size. And by the time I would get there, the animal was gone. And then on the third jump, <clears throat> luckily the animal was on uh, my side of the boat, which was fantastic. Even it was kind of like swimming behind the boat roughly. And this animal wasn't moving. It was like, a, I mean, you get in the water and, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. Right. And for a guy from the mountains, it's like a, it's a whole other it's a whole other game. And uh, uh, <laughs> I just, you know, if you scramble or you jump in the water, you scramble around, you try and figure out where you're looking. And then you finally hopefully find the object you're looking for. And this I mean, it's like the first time I see it 40 feet down from the surface, you know, and they call it a blue whale because it's this cobalt blue, this bright blue. I mean, shiny like a submarine and it's not moving. I mean, it's like just no fins, no tail movement. And it's just at a downward angle, you know, going down like a submarine in elevation. And there it is, 40 feet below my fins, just moving like a submarine, silent, soft, 
and then disappears into the blue. And these five seconds that I had with that animal on that fifth day on the ocean uh, were what I traveled around the world with, you know, what I'd thought about. And it was amazing. You know, I got a, I got a little bit of footage, uh, but was still able to experience it myself uh, and personally get to see it, which is surreal. Now, the excitement of that fifth day was phenomenal, you know, like a life, a real lifetime dream for me. And we're looking at the footage and the clips and it was like, you know, I got a clip of a blue whale underwater, which is uh, not easy to do. <laughs> and I had just come from the winter of Yellowstone, having uh, guided snowmobiles all winter and was outside all day, every day in the winter, uh, which is pretty cold. You know, one of the colder places in the lower 48. And I was highly adapted. I'd hike a mile to work in the morning at 7 a.m. and hike a mile back from work, you know, at the end of the day. So outside for roughly 10, 12, 14 hours a day, no matter the temperature. And then I go straight from that to the equator in this humid area uh, in the and it's essentially I mean, it's just so hot that I can't sleep. It's so humid that I can't sleep at all. I couldn't sleep without air conditioning. You know, like I'm sitting there resting at night and I feel like I can't breathe, which is funny because I'm coming from this cold, really dry climate and I'm going to this very humid climate. But I felt like I couldn't breathe and I couldn't sleep without air conditioning at all. And so the the night between the fifth and the sixth days on the ocean, I got two hours of sleep little bit of excitement for sure from the opportunity that I had the day before and, you know, one more day on the water. And because just without air conditioning, it was uh, I, something about it. I couldn't breathe. It was tough for me. And so I'm on two hours of sleep. The sixth day we're riding out there and, you know, it takes an hour to get to where we're going. So I don't have my fins on yet. The camera's not ready. I don't have my mask on. And you hear these three magic words from the driver, which is jump, 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 jump. And, you know, and when you hear those words, you jump up, you get off the boat and I uh, debated not going. And I was like, well, I should go anyways. You know, why not? Let's just give it a go. So I jumped off, no fins, mask barely on, no camera. And here is this animal, uh, you know, 20 to 30 feet away, swimming right next to the boat, completely unexpected because we hadn't gotten to where we were going. And this animal basically was half the distance as it was before and surfacing right near me. And I'm just looking at it, awestruck, having it's it's difficult to comprehend i still can't comprehend it to this point which is why i can't wait to go back because how do you wrap your head around your emotions around sharing the space with an animal the size of three school buses you know like what's that like and uh and then i was delirious on no sleep and and here is this animal way closer than i ever dreamed i could i could be to it and it was phenomenal i mean it was like the, well it was one of the best moments of my life for sure and so after that, we for some reason, this animal stayed near the boats that day and didn't necessarily leave, you know, the area that we were in and was quite casual with us. And we were able to we were able to die with it a couple dozen times, actually, which is um, kind of unheard of, you know, and like, why was the animal? It didn't. Yeah, it didn't. True, it wasn't leaving the area, nor were we chasing it. And it was like this weird, beautiful dance between the animal hanging out in the area where the boats were. There's a rumor we heard that there were orcas in the area that day. Is there a chance it was avoiding the orcas? Um, was it sick? You know, like the uh, boat captain and the owner of the company we were with was kind of curious as to why um, it stayed near the surface as long as it did. But essentially, you know, you just casually go along in the boat, wait for it to surface, and it'll take three to five breaths at the surface. And you being alongside it with the boat, have the opportunity then to jump in and allow it to swim by you. And we were able to do that a number of times that day. Uh, and so, you know, that, yeah, 
that's essentially how the sixth day went and was able to capture some amazing footage, which is the stuff you guys saw on the reel. So you that's did awesome. decide to take your camera in uh, after that. First <laughs> after day. that couple, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Good like call. Over, Good call. <laughs> over a dozen times, maybe. Yeah. The, uh, the f- <laughs> and then I was taken to the, you know, a number of times, of course, because uh, I'm inspired to capture stuff as we all are and, uh, you know, transmit that to the rest of the world. But then there were a few times, you know, where you really, um, that I went in without the camera to really soak it in, you know, to see this animal with, uh, with my own eyes, without the interface of the camera. I was really lucky to have the opportunity to do both. But yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, we well, saw congratulations. Yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. thank you. We saw the second largest whale up in Alaska, the fin whale, which is a close relative. Um, but we were distant, and obviously, it was just just surface, um, because up there you can't you can't approach them. And so I just seeing how big that animal was based on the breach and then the tail when they would, when they would dive, I couldn't imagine because it's, like I said, it's the second biggest and they're, they're close, but they're not a blue whale and blue whales. Like, you know, there's a polar bear, there's spirit bears for me, but the blue whale, I, I think that's money for everybody. I mean, the biggest animal on the planet, what else could you, hope to ever capture what's with all these people from wyoming being obsessed with blue whales so you obviously haven't listened to the podcast drew for coming out loud. i just listened to the last one and that answer that question's answered oh <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah, jacques Cousteau was the only thing on television for us it was mutual mutual omaha wild kingdom marty stoffer's <laughs> wild america and jacques Cousteau. And so you get, you've got a lot of Wyoming kids that went to college for to be marine biologists because we had nothing else to watch on television. We just didn't realize it would take us that far away from the mountains. And so most of us came back. And everybody wanted to grow beards because of Marty Stauffer. Yeah. No. <laughs> you know what, Brandon? It's, it's sorry, real quick, Ron. Yep. It's funny. It's not funny. It's really interesting hearing you tell the story because you can just feel the passion and the excitement coming through. And it's, we usually ask our guests a question, you know, it's what's your most memorable encounter in the outdoors um, and or outdoor experience? And I have a feeling we've already got that answer. But, uh, yeah, it's it's fun to hear the passion and the excitement. Yeah, that, you know, because yeah. I've been go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say, looking at your reel, you've had a lot of them. And for you to be that excited about it, it about that encounter with the blue whale, I think it speaks volumes to just almost how emotional, almost spiritual that encounter was. Yeah. You know, ever since I was a kid, imagining, I've just been curious about the idea of what it's like to spend space with a with an animal the size of a whale, you know, and when you're on land, you know, whether you're with bears or bison or elk or moose, you know, when these megafauna, you know, you've learned their behavior, you respect their proximity, their distance and their behavior. And the underwater realm is just massively different. There's no fences. The animals will often be close to you if they want to be or they'll go away if they don't, you know, and, and uh, you know, often you wait in the water and they approach you. And this is very interesting dynamic. And then, like, what is it like when you imagine you can read different numbers on how big the largest dinosaur was, uh, let's say roughly 70 tons, anywhere from 50 to 100 tons. But the estimate on, on blue whale weights, they're roughly 200 tons. So 
you know, two to three times the size of the largest dinosaur. And what, you know, my brain has always been curious about what is that like to spend space and time and energy with that animal? What would that be like to be next to one as they go by? And even though I've had it happen a few dozen times now, I still don't know how to comprehend it. I still don't know how to emotionally relate to it, but it's phenomenal. And I'd like to do it again. So yeah, that would easily be it. You know, like I've had some very special moments in the wilderness. uh, But uh, yeah, that that does take the cake as it was. It is my favorite animal in the world. And something that I'm going to spend much more time with in the future. So uh, that was just the first expedition. I want to take a step back because like a year and a half ago or so, maybe two years at this point, I don't know when we first started talking about this, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on you in particular is because you really, you basically taught yourself how to do wildlife videography, cinematography, and you documented that in uh you know, on your YouTube channel as well. So I want to take a step back and just, I want to ask you about that process because there's a lot of people out there that, you know, dabble in a little bit of video, primarily stills, but starting to dabble more and more in video, especially based on, you know, things like Instagram, TikTok, and and the uh, availability of resources that you can get video work out there. So kind of talk to us about those beginnings so that process it's interesting kind of like for me to answer that i'd have to start way back when i was six or seven when i kind of had the clarity and realization that i'd wanted to work with wildlife and working with wildlife was always a fascination in my my life's mission and passion for sure but then very quickly after that i realized for me not only do i love photography and the artistic style of photography And it's just something I've always been interested in. But then media and video always seemed like a wonderful way to take something that I cared immensely about and transmit it to the largest audience. And say, if I want to educate somebody on research or educate somebody on um, conservation or whatever's going on, something that I'm interested in and passionate about and feel is a story worth telling, I've I've always been in admiration of filmmaking and storytelling and video as a way to be able to take a message and and get it out there to the widest audience possible around the world. Because in all, really, for me, it's about uh, having an impact, you know, changing the world, having a positive impact, bringing more attention, more light towards uh, these things that we all care about, these natural resources. And knowing that since I was a, a young kid, it always seemed very difficult for me to get into this industry, you know, to make a life as a photographer, you're working freelance, you're working from contract to contract and how many people want to be a national geographic photographer you know how many people want to be a wildlife photographer as their as their thing so it just seems so you know like a a dream so far off something impossible to achieve and uh so instead i went to school for biology and at least got my foundation in wildlife knowledge and worked as a scientist for a few years and then uh pursued another little side dream of moving to australia and had always wanted to be in Australia, you know, growing up, the type of stuff I wanted to do with video was uh, like what Steve Irwin was doing. You know, I thought Mm -hmm. I was very inspired by Steve Irwin and his passion and enthusiasm. And the fact that he brought reptiles to, you know, the world stage, and and so to speak, you know, these animals that people often don't like, will often kill a snake or things, and they're afraid of, you know, crocodilians and, 
and I admired that his passion and enthusiasm brought these animals to a world stage. And, and uh, I liked what he was doing and how he was doing it in certain aspects and um, became very interested in Australia and reptiles and uh, really wanted to you know move there at some point. So I took an opportunity and a break uh, from work to, to move there for a year. And very quickly in that journey of moving to Australia, had I gained the clarity that I'd always known what my lifelong dream was. And despite it being impossible to achieve or very difficult, there's so many hurdles. How do you get in? You know, the whole process, uh, it was still something I'd wanted to do. So I moved back to the States after a while, uh, saved up my money, paid off school loans, and then saved up more money and then bought a video camera. And because at that time I'd already spent five to six years in Yellowstone, it was a perfect place to teach myself how to be a wildlife cameraman. And photography has always been a thing since I was a kid, you know, ever since like the yellow Polaroid click wheel, 32, you know, shots, get them, get them developed at Walgreens and like, wait to see what you get thing. You know, like I, I've been doing that for a long time. And then when I graduated college, had a proper DSLR and traveled the country with it. And so photography has always been an aspect of my life. The video is always where I wanted to go with it. And so it was kind of two options, either go to school for it and accrue more debt, uh, you know, and more school loans um, in a place, you know, near Yellowstone that I loved or take that, take, you know, less money than going to school and buying a camera and using my knowledge of the Yellowstone ecosystem as a perfect foundation to teach myself how to do video. And so that was the route I ended up choosing. And then you know, from there, uh, it continued to develop and then got into some very nice opportunities early on and kept the inspiration going. And, you know, the more time you spend with it, the more time in the field you practice, you know, and it doesn't matter what subjects you have, you know, any, you could do ants in the backyard or birds or caterpillars, but anything you can practice your photography or videography on, you know, the more time, the better. So many of the people that we have on the show, it's, it's simply because every time we're out, they're out. And I can say that just about every time I've been over in, in Yellowstone or Grand Teton National Park or, you know, in that western side of the state, almost inevitably I'll run into you somewhere. It doesn't matter if it's winter or summer, you know, or spring, you know, when the bears are first coming out. So it's, you know, those are the type of people that are that are like us and they, they just chase that passion all the time. And you can see the passion and you can see that it's genuine. Uh, this isn't anything that's forced. This isn't anything that you're telling a story that is different from what the reality was. You've got you've got kind of a genuine way about you, and your your storytelling is, you know, even in the short time that I've known you, it's on a different level now. So you you started on a couple projects over there that were just kind of day to day video. You just go get what you got, right? When you were working on Correct, the, what yeah. was it, Wild Yellowstone or something like that? Oh, the productions that I was on. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, so like the whole journey, you know, because I had always dreamed of being on camera as a host and you know inspiring people to go outside and inspiring them to be more connected with nature, you know, whatever ways they can. Uh, I decided to film the process of me teaching myself video work, and so we'll just you bring a little GoPro along in the field. And man, for a story, you guys, I'll give it a nutshell as to what my first days in videography looked like, you know, so I worked a five, you know, a five day job as a waiter in a restaurant because it was just the best quick money 
um, in the town that I was living in outside of Yellowstone. And that was the way I paid off school loans because when I was considering pursuing a career that wouldn't pay much, you know, for the first little while being debt free made sense for me. And so, uh, before I got back into guiding, cause I've worked as a wildlife guide in Yellowstone for a number of years, but before I got back into that, I was in a little stint in restaurants and I'd work five days. And then, and this is in the winter, this is January in Montana. I would drive at 3 a.m. on my Saturday into Yellowstone uh, with two days worth of supplies. And, uh, you know, I drive a car, not a truck, so it's not easy to sleep in, but I'd sleep in it overnight. And I would just stay in Yellowstone for my whole weekend practicing filming. And then I would chronicle that journey with a GoPro and share whatever stories that I thought were you know decent enough. And then edited those into this initial YouTube series uh, that you've seen a, a bit of. And um, <laughs> it's funny looking back on those nowadays. It's uh, yeah, that's a number of years ago. But so, you know, just putting your own time in, you know, no one was paying me to do it or asking me to do it. It's just fun that, you know, if you really want something, you go after it and you know, you, you got to put in the time and, and uh, learn it and hone your craft and, and uh, get better at it. And so like you just spent, I just spent all day in the field essentially, and then got back into guiding. So then I moved closer to Yellowstone. And ever, as a result, it's a whole other story that I'll potentially publish into a book, how I went from, you know, like, you know, filming for myself on the weekends in the winter to, um, I got to work this uh, live production in Yellowstone uh, for, a, you know, a famous channel that, and so it was, a uh, so working my way into that opportunity was, um, an adventure in itself, but yeah, luckily worked my way into uh, filming some wildlife, uh, for this Yellowstone live production. And then that turned into another season of Yellowstone live. And then that turned into a, another two year project that I was on, uh, for PBS following this bear family in the Tetons. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the way of the world for videography is one thing leads to another or it doesn't and you're just done <laughs> or you go learn learn some more spend some more time doc chronicling your learning process but but yeah when you when you've got it one thing leads to another and then you start all of a sudden you're keeping yourself busy and i was going to mention the car because when everybody else is running around in four-wheel drives and you know suvs and trucks you, oh. when Brandon comes by, there's no mistaking it because he's always in the same car. <laughs> yeah. Well, and let's just be clear, guys. It was a little it's car. Not a it big car. Like... Yeah. <laughs> right. It was a little car. So oh, yeah. Man. But that's man, the truth of the, it. The chronicle yeah. condo. The Honda Accord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that thing's been across the country 13 times and she's, uh, yeah, she's been great. How do you survive the winter in Montana with a Honda Accord? driving frozen highways in the dark uh, i don't know you know on on used snow tires and one of them had a one of them had a puncture in it and it was apparently repaired with an atv um little piece plug. of like kevlar yeah yeah it wasn't like a normal plug even and so the entire time that whole first winter i'm like nervous that this tire is going to blow out and i'm going to slide off the road ruin my car ruin my camera my whole life you know change but um uh, we made it you know i made it through <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Much more money has gone into my camera stuff than my car. That's for sure. Well, you've got <laughs> honestly, you've got to do that. I've never ever yeah. owned a new car because it's always gone into camera gear, lenses, and yeah. and I've never, as you can see, ever purchased, you know, just for men or Grecian formula either. All the money that I saved 
let my hair just go gray went into camera gear so yeah <laughs> but, but yeah you i mean there's there's no if ands or buts it's one or the other you can drive a nice car or you can drive a nice camera and you kind of have are you still filming with the 300 to 800? I do use that one. The Sigma 60 to 600 is fantastic for video as well. Yeah. Uh, and so between those two lenses and then, you know, you have some time lapse and, uh, and landscape lenses that are shorter focal length. But I do yeah, utilize that lens when I know that I can be a decent proximity to the animal. Yeah, that's a great lens for Yellowstone. If you don't, you know, it's kind of the budget uh, budget friendly CN20 you can't buy the 52,000, you can definitely swing the 300 to 800 and still have some pretty good reach, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's the, I mean, there's no other lens that really is like it, is there? I know, like, until <laughs> you have a spare 70 grand laying around for a CN20, right. I've tried to convince a couple of friends that I've met that have come through here to get it, you know, and I borrow it, but uh, it still hasn't happened. <laughs> it's better to have friends with lenses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so, so your portfolio—you've got a, a diverse portfolio from blue whales to wolves to grizzly bears to um, what's your favorite? I mean, we, we I, let's let's just narrow it down because we, we we've covered all the excitement with the, the whales. So let's hmm. let's let's say what, what's your favorite in the uh, the GYE there? Oh, okay, yeah. For the GYE, you know, I. I've spent a lot of time with the megafauna mammals, the larger mammals, you know, wolves, bears, uh, moose, elk, bison. I would like to spend almost like a whole season with the bison. I do really enjoy the bison. I think they have a fantastic story and watching them endure the elements, you know, spending time with them in the winter. They're incredible creatures. Uh, and to, you know, properly film them during the mating season, you know, would take some commitment. And I'm often, you know, going after predators. So. I do enjoy the bison yet to take the time to really focus on them, but I find myself, you know, leaning more away from, because to access those megafauna species, you're often near the road and that whole aspect. And as we know, in Yellowstone is uh, the road and cars and people, it's a very different dynamic than filming by yourself in the woods. Uh, I would say that great gray owls are, are easily my top next to otters. And then right behind them would probably be wolves. You know, wolves are just fantastic creatures that are mesmerizing in so many ways and very difficult to get good footage of. And I appreciate that challenge a lot. And uh, so, I, you know, great gray owls and otters are often up there as far as animals I like to spend time with. Uh, and, and then uh, and then wolves would be right behind them. But uh, I find I really like, you know, the little creatures like hummingbirds for example like i'm very into hummingbirds i'm obsessed with hummingbirds i've been trying to research you know have any of you guys ever seen a hummingbird nest mike actually so his his good buddy's a, a game warden down in durango colorado hmm. and he walked out of the house and the, and the game warden had a hummingbird nest like right off his deck so mike was able to get the whole thing i mean yeah. basically from start to finish it was crazy I recall that story. I was hoping if he was going to be here, I was going to ask him about it because what I'm really curious is I find myself being very interested in these smaller creatures or these less covered creatures than the megafauna and the Yellowstone ecosystem. And like, what's that process like when the hummingbird leaves its nest? You know, does it just take off and it's gone after one flight or do they do test flights and come back down to the nest? But because they're so, you know, highly active, you know, what is that? 
what's did i'm wondering if he captured that moment did he actually get the moment it left the nest and did it leave completely or? i don't know i know he you was know, there that? for a couple of weeks and he got him because mm-hmm. you know the nest is made of they use a lot of spider silk so that it expands as the little teeny tiny guys grow um and i know he got almost where the thing was completely opened up and fully expanded. And I don't, I think there were two, maybe three young ones, but it, uh, I don't recall to be honest, whether he got them taken off or not. That's a good question for him though. You should text him on his Zolio uh, while he's in the field and see if we can get a response. Except we can't by the time we're finished recording. We can't right now because he's in, (laughs) he's in uh, his, 12 hours of golden hour up there filming. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's some seriously messed up priorities then if he doesn't have time to, uh, right. to text with us. Oh, we can, we can text. Him. Oh, message him. Yeah. I guarantee it. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's test him in the field and just I got it. him with the Zolio. That'd be, you guys that'd asked, be great. Actually, it'd be a good, you guys good asked test. Brandon another question and I got, I got Mike. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're listening off your favorites. Are, what, what behavior that you've captured on film uh, amongst your favorite creatures there um, was something that surprised you or, I mean, like, like, or that you, you just were not expecting when you went out and you saw a creature do something just totally off the, uh, off the charts. So uh, that video I'm editing right now, actually, and should be done this week. So it'll definitely be out by the time uh, this airs. Uh, but wolves hunting bison was, uh, you know, like I've watched many wolves for a long time and have never seen them successfully take anything down. You know, the hunting shot as far as video and behavior wise is, you know, right next to mating as far as these really elusive behaviors. And there was this, you know, portion of time where I was focusing on incorporating wolves into my portfolio because it was one of the animals that I just didn't have any good footage of. They're so elusive to see close, you know, close enough proximity to get good images of. And you really got to put a lot of time with that animal or get very lucky. Uh, And to, you know, with video, you're always focusing on a behavior outside of just a beautiful image and incorporating them kind of both into the storytelling aspect of it. And to tell the story of wolves surviving the winter, you know, you got to show them hopefully eating and and hunting. Um, But they're, you know, successful less than 20, 23% of the time, depending on what statistics you read. So it's, they're, it's very hard for them to catch food. And they often are going after elk, which historically in this ecosystem make up 75, roughly 70% of their diet in the summer and up to 90% of their diet in the winter are elk. Uh, but there have been a few of these packs that have taught themselves have to go after bison. And you're talking a hundred pound animal on average going after a thousand to 2000 pound animal on average. And so t- 10 times its size. And the only time I've ever seen a wolf pack take something down is this one morning we were out in the winter, you know, watching this pack of 24 wolves, which is easily twice the size of an average size pack. Uh, And they happen to have been messing with these bison. I happen to have had my camera and albeit at a very far distance, uh, I was still able to witness and capture um, wolves successfully taking a bison down. Uh, which was easily one of the more special moments right next to the blue whale as far as me um, being in the wilderness. So wolves hunting, you know, is, is very, you got to put in a lot of time or get really lucky. And uh, that's a really rare behavior. And I've been fortunate enough with many other species and many other behaviors. And that was the one and only time that I've actually seen them 
or being able to capture them making physical contact with another animal. And that's, that's a special it's, moment for a totally different reason, right? Because you put so much time into that, so much time and effort, and it's, it's a behavior you know you want to capture. And to be able to finally check that off, that's got to be, you know, it's not like the blue whale where it's just this awe-inspiring moment the first time you go out after them. This is one that you've spent years on. And so it's got to be almost yeah, a relief, but, you know, also nailing the shot. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> truth be told, you guys, I filmed it at over two miles away. So <laughs> yeah. it's leaving a bit to be desired. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but I mean, that's sometimes, unfortunately, the way it goes. Correct. Content, okay. content, content. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it fits amazingly well. That, you know, that behavior, the specific hunting, because what is it like? You imagine, you know, 10 to 20 to 24 wolves going after a bison. Like, what does that look like? You know, what is that about? And how do they do it? And how do they stay alive? Because you imagine like things like wolves, they don't have hospitals. They don't have doctors. You know, if they get kicked once by an elk or a bison, I mean, they can die from it or they suffer an injury that, you know, could break their jaw, break their rib, their leg. So like they really have to be flawless at hunting these animals. So how does how does that process happen? You know, and uh, and I'm very curious about that and was observing it that day. Yeah. I mean, the proximity, you know, so be it. But uh, it was fantastic. It was phenomenal to get to witness it and watch it, let alone capture it. And it'll cut as far as like video and making a story and sequence. It'll it cuts perfectly into this. Some other footage I have of wolves of, of much closer proximity. Uh, and uh, I think actually the video that, you know, should be out. Um, I'll finish it this week and it should be out early next week. Uh, will be one of the better ones uh, that I've produced so far that I really enjoy. So, so by the time yeah, by the time we post this episode, that video will be out. So make sure you go check Inspire Wild Media. Go ahead, Drew. It'll be the it'll be the viral video that everybody's already right, seen. True, everybody will have already late, seen it. So that's true. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you know, and but actually, you're 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 touching on something there that's always that I've always loved about, uh, I don't have near as much Yellowstone experience as, as you guys. Um, uh, but it's a place that I, I have gone frequently, uh, haven't for a few years, but watching wolves in Yellowstone, um, I really enjoyed being able to watch the wolves work on a landscape scale. Like, yeah, it wasn't always like in your face, uh, kind of stuff, but when you can sit back at, shoot a mile away, two miles away, whether you're watching through a spotting scope or binos or a long camera lens and just see how the whole thing plays out adds, I think, a level, another level to potentially your understanding of being able to, to see how the whole story actually works as opposed to being like right on top of something. There's nothing, there's no context, there's no habitat. It's like right in there, but to be able to just see the broad picture, the big picture stuff um, was just always something I really enjoyed about uh, watching wildlife in Yellowstone. And it sounds like, sounds like that footage is, uh, is going to be really cool. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I would agree. You know, like that's, I think one of the special things about Yellowstone, especially that Northern range where there's grasslands and you don't, you're not looking through trees. So you have that opportunity to see for miles and then you're, you're witnessing this whole ecosystem, you know, exist. And you're just this little dot on the wall near the road. And you're watching these entire seasonal movements and pack movements and things. And it's phenomenal, especially when you spend you know, some time in one area and you get really familiar with it. Understanding seasonal movements of wildlife 
and uh, these forces at play that, you know, determine certain behaviors at certain times and what animals endure, you know, from insects up to up to large mammals. It's it's amazing what they have to endure and how they're adapted to survive and do it well. You know, so I would agree with you. It's, it's a it's a very special place. Or the strategies involved in like wolves taking down a bison, like how just yeah, how the heck do they do it? <laughs> It's like a zombie army. It was exactly like what you'd think, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I was joking with a friend about that. Like, I knew there was this pack. I knew they liked honey bison. And I knew there was, well, at the time, there was 30 or more. And so, like, it's got to be just like a zombie army going after this massive thing. And sure enough, that's exactly what it's like. You get all these, I mean, they basically try and take it down from every angle. And, you know, I only put, you know, I try to, to, to be honest, um, I'm not sure if the video go viral because I made it seven and a half minutes. And so it's longer than most attention spans nowadays. But to do the story justice and to do the footage that I have justice, you know, I I, I didn't want to shorten the video to two minutes or so because it's just it's a whole process and saga. And uh, and it cuts in with this other nice footage. So, you know, we'll see how many people watch a seven and a half minute video. But that the like there's one shot in there that's 30 seconds long and, and it should be in there. Um, you know, I didn't feel like shortening it because you get to watch that exact process mm -hmm. of what, you know, all these guys going after this animal that's much larger than they are. Well, that's your that's your viral TikTok clip. Is that that 30 seconds? <laughs> yeah. The 30 and then, second. Yeah. The, teaser. Just the rest of it. <laughs> well, I promise I'm going to watch all seven and a half minutes. Yeah, of me that. too. And love <laughs> as long as there's good it. music. Same. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's how I just finalized that two days ago. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, well, without getting into the full details, I, I have to cut together the music um, for a particular audience that I'm going to email it to. And uh, so I didn't want that, you know, the music had to be subtle. Like, how do you transmit the emotion of the death of an animal while it being such a mesmerizing behavior that's so rarely witnessed? And so it was it was tough to choose. I have three tracks in there. You know, they're very kind of subtle in the background, but um, hopefully fit the mood. And uh, yeah, we'll see. I'll, I'll be curious to, see, to hear what you guys think of it once it's uh, finally out there. Yeah, I think when you... you did you do one for Disney? Is it like <laughs> Disney songs? <laughs> no, I'd be like over the top. I've actually had to go the opposite spectrum, more for like a European crowd and make it more subtle, oh, okay. you know, and more like low key versus more over the top. And so I tried as hard as possible not to be... Uh, not to be like Disney, okay. basically. <laughs> or Peter and the Wolf. Oh, yeah. So oh, Peter and the go. Wolf. Yeah. Interesting you brought that up. You used to have the Peter and the Wolf LP. And my cousins and I, my cousins and I would sit around the record player, but we'd sit everybody facing away from it. Because when the, when the music came on that accompanied the wolf coming into the scene, like the hair on the back of your neck would stand up and you get goosebumps but only if you were facing away and their back was like right there by the music. So that was, <laughs> that was another. Uh, Ron's getting, yeah. Ron's getting I know. goosebumps right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got to go to explain to my daughter what an LP is. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have to explain to a lot of people what an LP is. Brandon, Brandon probably doesn't even know. Cassette tapes, yeah. <laughs> oh man, my car still has a cassette oh. tape adapter. You guys, I still rock it. <laughs> <Attaboy>. <laughs> oh, 
So you could put the CD player on the dashboard and just run it into the tape adapter yeah. there. Like that's, mm, that's it. It's got yes. both, actually. It's got a six CD changer, but that's not working, actually. And then, oh. and then the tape deck right below it. I bet you if you put a story together for Honda, you might get a free free car out of this deal. Talking I about know. the 12 you know, times you've been around the country. I yeah. I should. They'd appreciate it. I mean, because like the car lasts forever, you know, and I've used it on productions where they've hired me in my car and then, you know, paid me per mileage. So I've made quite a bit of money off the car, far yeah. more than it's worth. But uh, don't tell them that, you know, which has been great. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> they don't know. Do you list and, it on uh, your kit when you're when you're when you're applying yeah. for, for jobs and things? Oh, I've got oh. the red. I've got the three to eight. I've got a, uh, a Honda Accord. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> limited edition custom made vintage you know, school, vintage honda you know, tape yeah. deck yeah. see but they save money because you know sometimes they would rent you a car and i'm like you don't need to rent a car like i have my own car it's great and they save money i make money on the right. car it all works out you know everybody's happy in the yeah. end and because uh, they're always looking at ways to save money uh you know really all i want you guys after spending so much time outside is a car that has a thermometer so I know if it's negative 20, <laughs> if it's zero or positive 10, do I need hand warmers and toe warmers or do I not? You know, so I just need a modern car with a thermometer. I'm good to go. That's my dream. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not asking for a lot from Honda. I think. <laughs> I will. I'll put a little yeah. cut together for I definitely, him. I definitely would. Well, hopefully you'll send us a sneak peek of that when you get it done. I'd love to check it out, man. Yeah, for sure. And when oh, you do yeah, also... Yeah. Um, send us the link to the, the full full length and we'll, you know, just drive some traffic toward your YouTube channel as well. Is that where it's going to go out? You know, I, that is, I'll put it on all the forms, the, you know, my website, uh, Instagram and uh, YouTube. Mm -hmm. And so I'll certainly tag you guys on Instagram and can tag you on YouTube as well. Uh, but yeah, the full, like, you know, like I'll export it in 4k, uh, and yeah, I'll put that on YouTube. Why yeah. not? Like it deserves. No, and we'll we'll throw it. the and link I've, in the I've show notes the too, so it's so people can go to your page directly. So, however you want to do that. You guys think it should be titled "Twenty Four Wolves Kill a Bison" or "Twenty Four Wolves Hunting Bison"? I think it should be called "Zombie yeah. Wolves." Yes, <laughs> that's for TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. Well, if you put if you put kill if you put kill in the uh, in the title, it's that's a spoiler. Right, right. So somebody might not watch the whole thing because they know how it's going to end. Uh, so I, I would suggest keep the mystery alive. Give the bison a mm. fighting chance. Until, bison, you know, bison versus know what happens, but bison versus wolf pack. I think you just leave it open. See, zombie, zombie wolf. I, I put this video up one time. <laughs> zombie, zombie's gonna zombie's it. gonna bring some folks in. It's gonna I'm bring the you. heat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder though, you know, because I had this bear on a carcass video one time. You know, this famous um, this grizzly bear was on this elk carcass in Yellowstone, and and put together some videos of that. And because I called it grizzly elk carcass, this guy complained that the kill wasn't in there. And I didn't even say kill. I just said elk carcass. And some guy was like, well, you didn't have the kill. And I find um, like if you say that you have that like that quintessential shot, the final shot in there is that would that drive more traffic? Because people know that you actually have mm -hmm. the shot in there versus like, you know, could people just watch hunting bison? But who has a shot of a wolf killing a bison? 
And so, you know, like mm -hmm. that's like the actual story because that's one of the special sauces. Despite the distance, you know, it's still good enough uh, to put out there. People, you know, hopefully will still enjoy seeing it. But I debate that, you know, is it are you giving away too much or are you drawing people in more because you do let them know that you actually have the behavior that everybody sees. And, and then a lot of people missed out on going to Yellowstone. So throw Yellowstone, Yellowstone, Yellowstone wolves hunt bison. Leave it at that. And yeah, yeah, yeah that's a key word. Yeah. yeah. You've got all those people that are mad. Hey, I, I couldn't believe how many people complained and wrote in and, and gave negative or like one star Yelp reviews to Yellowstone national park because they've planned this for years and, they get here and it's like Wally World and the place is closed. Right. Wow. <laughs> like, no compassion from those guys, huh? Like, no empathy to are understand. You, are I you guess. watching oh, the news? Man. Because I, I don't care how long I've planned it, I wouldn't well, be going. Well, and give I, I'm I just get bits and pieces of stuff uh, from social media now. Like, what is the extent of this? Like, totally what's, wiped what's, out. What's happening moving forward? Totally wiped out several of the main thoroughfares or at least entry points. And then the reason that they closed everything for a while is because they, I think Jason alluded to this last time we were on, is they had to go check the bridges. Um, they had to have the engineers go check the bridges and make sure they were still stable for the places that had taken a lot of water, but the bridges were still standing. And those those areas up in the north, I mean, it may be, I you know, we talked about it. They'll probably reroute at least one of the roads, if not a couple, um, to higher ground. But easily is looking like a two-year project before they're completely open. And the unfortunate thing is they just got one of those roads open. They've been, it's been under construction the last couple of seasons and it's one of the best spots to go watch bears hunt, you know, elk calves and, and bison calves and that kind of thing. So I've been missing it and now it's closed again because, because of the Northern loop is, is closed, but there's no way you could leave it open. Even if, even if the road on the actual loop was stable because people would inevitably try to go in the closed areas. It would be a nightmare for them. So they did, did what they had to do, unfortunately, but uh, it, it's, it's bad. I mean, like yeah. biblical bad. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of us wondering, you know, what they're going to do because right now the folks in cook city can't even get through Lamar to Lamar Valley and then they can't, even if they could get to Lamar, they can't get from, you know, Mammoth out to Gardner because the both roads and both those areas are completely gone. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, what kind of construction and engineering feat it's going to take to get that taken care of, or they're just going to, if they can't get it done right, they're probably going to have to plow that pass for the winter. Yeah. Um, and that pass is not a fun yeah. pass. I mean, I wouldn't want to be driving that pass in the winter, even if it was plowed. Yeah. So but, you still can get through like that back way into Cook City. Yeah. Right now you can. You can come through Wyoming. Right. But when but the snow's when come, the snow comes, it's, like there was always just that big the end of the road there in Cook City. Like you need your uh, snow machine to go any further. Right. Leave it closed up to Wyoming to the Wyoming border, basically. Well, and I'm not being I'm not trying to be nip. This is a different scenario, but it literally took them like ten years to get the road between Norris and Amoth completed. You know, so I mean, it was a major project. Don't get me wrong, but it took a long time. That road was under construction for a lot of years. Um, and so, you know, just the idea that these roads are completely washed out, they're not redoing them. They're going to have to completely re, you know, cut the road, the whole nine yards in those areas. So yeah, I, who knows? Well, it'll be interesting to see what they're going to do and how long it's going to be closed. But 
everything I'm thinking like Ron said, I think it's at least a year, if not two, you know, before we're able to get back into that area. Yeah. So let's bring that back to, to Brandon. How does that, how does that impact you? I mean, being primarily a, a greater Yellowstone ecosystem cinematographer, that's going to severely limit your wintertime activities or at least change them. Right. So what do you, what do you see in the near future? It was, it was sad to take at the time, you know, that day that it was happening. Uh, It was pretty emotional because I I have a lot of friends that live in both of the communities of Gardner and Cook City and Silvergate. And to understand that they were isolated, potentially in dangerous situations and just that watching this park that we just had a phenomenal experience. You know, I had a great trip when we were at the Badger Den and, you know, the park is only green for so much of the year. And it's just such a beautiful time to get to see it. Life is really alive, young animals walking around. And so to, to watch to watch that process happen, you knew that it was going to be permanently altered. You know, just like Jason was saying, that the projects they have in the parks, they, they take quite a while to get done. And there are now a number of projects that have to get done to the extent as we were just describing. So it's going to be quite a while unless they really recruit a number of crews and somehow get it done sooner than later, but it seems like it'll be a couple of years. So I'm not sure how, and then on top of that, to amplify uh, the damage, you know, they go to this um, system of entry. And I know there are a number of other parks around the country that are doing the reservation system only. And something about like, if they were to bring that to Yellowstone, which they alluded to, but I guess have not fully yet, doing this, you know, numbers with a license plate, you can only go in on odd or even days type of thing. Uh, I'm not sure how long that's going to last. So the so the navigating around the damage is one thing because you can only get access with your car. That's not going to happen in the winter for anybody for probably the next two winters, you know, so for the next, you know, year and a half to two years, things like that, you're not going to have access to the to the northern part of Yellowstone unless they somehow open it up, unless they're going to open it up for residents only for Cook City in the winter this year. You know, but how the question is, how long are they going to leave this license plate odd and even number entry days uh, process going or will they completely flip to reservation only? And so that really impacts, you know, like a freelance photographer, filmmaker, because then you you really have to plan your days and your trips. You can't go up based on wildlife events. You can't go up spontaneously. You know, you really have to make sure that, you know, you plan it well ahead of time. So it kind of just it limits your access in ways and really makes you have to focus on certain times of the year to plan trips and then hopefully be able to gain entry. So it'd be interesting how that system uh, develops. Will they go to a full reservation system? Will they keep the license plate? Or once things calm down, will they go back to, you know, if you're around, you're allowed to go in whenever as, you want. And I find that to be a really big As factor. with anything with the federal government, I think once anything is implemented, it's harder to shut it down than it was to begin so, I, I mean, it's unfortunate, yeah. but you could see it coming in Yellowstone for a long time, though, just with the sheer numbers, the sheer volume of people coming in. And maybe they'll do like a, you know, a, a photographer pass where you can go in every day, but just regular visitors are on that every other. But I don't I don't see them making those concessions, to be honest with you. Yeah, with the, with the, the attitude. Yeah, exactly. Park Service has with photographers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good luck. Right. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, so it just limits access. You know, uh, I, I'm I'm fairly happy. Um, I I'm grateful for me personally that I've uh, developed my portfolio in that ecosystem well enough that uh, 
I'm, I'm in the office editing every day and, and working on other gigs as opposed to, you know, filming this ecosystem. So it, for me personally, I was transitioning to, you know, more stuff around the world and more stuff underwater. So um, as far as like my particular work goes, it's okay because I have a number of behaviors and sequences and footage that I'd like to edit and release to the world that I've captured over the last few years um, versus needing to gain more. And so, uh, or wanting to gain more, I should say, you know, and, and um, you know, I always love getting outside, of course, and would love to get back up there. And so it's really sad and emotional, that aspect, like this area that we love, you're not going to see it for a while. The animals will love it, no doubt. And I'm happy for them, you know, and, and it's good, you know, they, they could use a break, you know, because, you know, when we were describing like badgers becoming active at night, you know, animals are very intelligent and they're very adapted to where they live so they can be successful at living. And you find, of course, they're adapting to roads and people. It's such a force that, you know, they recognize it. And the animals in Yellowstone are highly adapted to the road. They understand when people are around and they utilize the road when people aren't. And so, like, they're going to take back over basically the whole park very quickly and and, and enjoy it and hopefully thrive in, in certain ways. So, you know, good for the animals. Tough for us to get to witness that. Um and not get to witness it for a while. But uh, it's at a time where I'll be branching out to, uh, you know, uh, work opportunities around the world. So uh, uh, it'll be, it's uh, timely in that way, I guess. Yep. So Brandon, I'm sorry. I, this is the first I've heard about the license plate thing. Could you just maybe expand on that just a little bit? Help. I mean, I could go look it up, but maybe other people haven't heard of it either. wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more about how that works. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and this may change, you know, by the time this airs, uh, but the, the uh, specific update, is right now currently if your license plate ends on an even number you can go in on even number dates and if your license plate ends on an odd number you can go in on odd number dates you know the so the wow. number that you know 15 and your license plate ends in an odd number which i think is more you know open than the reservation system and i know they've talked about the reservation system coming to yellowstone for a long time you know and uh, and it's duly noted you want to of course care for the resource um, as a priority, I just, uh, have enjoyed that there wasn't that threshold for people to go to experience nature. And, you know, because I think in all, all the end, we, we'd all like more people to experience nature, of course, in sustainable ways. And, um, I hope that it doesn't deter people from getting to explore and enjoy the magic of, of what is that park and that ecosystem. But yeah, the license plate. So even on even days and odds on odd days at the moment is the way it works. So okay. note, Thank note you. to self then is choose your friends based on the otter, otter even uh, relationship between both of your vehicles. So you can, you know, right. you just alternate. We'll vehicles. take your car today. We'll take my car tomorrow. <laughs> what about vanity plates? Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, I was told the information that I haven't read the report myself mm. yet. And then I'm wondering, like, are they about to put a, a gate at every gate now, like an actual gate across the road? Or I'm going to go get the yeah. Wyoming just started that conservation plates, right? So I'm going to I'm going to run down and get odds and evens. <laughs> yeah, too. Just switch them exactly. Like, sir, we saw here Wyoming yesterday. odds. No. Yeah, but I'm odds and evens. I'm in a new car. So what are you going to do? One yeah. for the front, one for the back. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, oh, so Brandon, what do you have? I mean, you kind of alluded to it with kind of changing your focus or shifting your focus a little bit, but I'm sure you'll still do some stuff around home. What, what else do you have coming up in the next year or two? 
So I'm, I'm really looking to expand. Uh, I have a film story. I'm not going to say too much about it, but it's a, a, you know, like there's a couple of different things. So there's the wildlife cinematography for, you know, TV productions and wildlife behavior and stuff, which is fantastic. Uh, it's, it's enjoyable dream stuff to get to be involved in. And so I'll kind of follow that where opportunities lead me. You know, I'm, I'm open. I really like to get down uh, to the jungles of the Amazon. Really like to get down to South America quite a bit and explore that. I'm trying to expand more in underwater, but that's really difficult. Like once you're kind of like it's a, it's difficult to be a hybrid between an underwater and on land cameraman, and it takes a lot of experience and opportunity. And me being landlocked where I am at the moment, uh, it's difficult to to gain more experience underwater. So I'm, I'm looking to branch out more that direction as well. And then this film story. So outside of like wildlife behavior and, and camera work. Um, I'm looking to develop a film. I won't say too much about it yet because we'll see because the timeline, I'm not too sure yet. And so I don't want to pigeonhole myself, but I, I have to do a couple expeditions around the world and fundraise for it and uh, really network for other people to participate in this film to, to make a proper film that I enter into festivals. And uh, that would be a real passion project and dream project uh, that I've already kind of started. And the story needs to be developed a bit more. And then the timeline, if I can get the expedition in next year, uh, then I'll really be able to kind of develop that 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 project more. So kind of a hybrid between uh, expanding the cinematography work to ecosystems around the world and gaining more experience in, in those areas. And then also working on that particular film storyline and development uh, over the over the coming months and seeing how that'll develop as far as international travel and opportunities that way. So keep us in keep us in mind because we have had the opportunity to visit with cinematographers or filmmakers and and photographers from all over the world so when you start looking for names uh let us know and we'll see how we can help you and then when it's time to film I I, i'll you. volunteer i you know I've, i volunteer as tribute <laughs> <laughs> i know that'd be great because then you can always like there it is i mean i know you guys have mentioned the snow leopard a couple of times yeah. and had a few people on a reference to that and you know reference the quality of experience that they've had that sounds phenomenal getting up north where drew is like obviously as a mountain person let alone an ocean person you know well, like, that's that's easy i mean now. the fact that i yeah. haven't been up there personally yet is <laughs> I, you know that's where i need to go so i need to just make that happen and plan the trip but then there's africa as well it's like you know you gotta you gotta choose the year and commit yourself yeah. to to some of those and it's always of course budget limited and uh, opportunity limited so you know uh yeah, at the moment, I'm flexible to where the opportunities will, will take me. But um, often, if it's on my own choice, I find myself leaning towards uh, more experiences with whales sure. and underwater. Uh, but on land, well, Drew's got some that, good uh, whale stuff, too. You know, so you guys can talk after the podcast. The beluga just showed up. Uh, I probably saw 30 or 40 of them the other day. We were out, we were out birding. Um, and the birders were watching the birds and the, the whale watchers were watching the whales. There was an overlap in habitat there. So you had <laughs> mixing of the, uh, the two different uh, wildlife enthusiast yeah. groups. I didn't realize belugas could fly. That's amazing. <laughs> need to film that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's only in Churchill. So you got, yeah. uh, yeah. kind of got, got that on lockdown. So you need to get with him and, uh, and get that arranged. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the ice is starting to go out. The belugas are in. Like, we're going to have polar bears turning up. Soon, huh? Well, there was one sighted, I guess, over across the river, but I haven't laid eyes on one yet. 
Hmm. Uh, but that's going to be going to be happening here soon. So summer, the ice is almost really? melted. It's when's July. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's awesome. I, I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to have you on again. And this time it will definitely not be a year and a half in the making or, or two years because <laughs> we're going to have to have some follow-up on, on that project when you get everything lined out and, and get everything filmed. That sounds like a, a fun project and hopefully we can at least contribute some names and be a bit, you know, a little part of it to help you out as you're getting things put together. But it sounds great. Yeah, that, that would be great. You know, it, it definitely is a passion project and obviously collaboration, you know, with people that are involved and care about the outdoors and natural resources. And that's kind of like the main mission and message of it is to, uh, you know, inspire people to pursue their dreams and, and to get outside more essentially. And so uh, that's kind of the focus, uh, one of the focuses of it and kind of one of the themes, I guess you'd say. So I think it, uh, it'd be great to be able to discuss that and, uh, and do a follow up on it for sure. So no response from Mike, as expected. He's he's busy filming, but um, you know Zolio does give us that opportunity, and obviously for a project like yours, that's something that you're going to need to to consider is how are you going to communicate. But I, you know, between Zolio and Honda, you ought to be able to get that trip or get that project sponsored 100 percent, a couple million dollars <laughs> between. Yeah, the that's two. the dream. Now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we d actually we've been looking at we've been looking at electric vehicles for for here for polar bear tours and uh so we were talking about reaching out to some of the companies saying, Hell, this you is know, this is the test a, site send us an ev we'll we'll send you we'll send you some footage of it with polar bears at i mean that's 40, kind of the that's what they're all wanting 40 anyway. 50 below see right. you can <laughs> prove that it still runs yeah. at 40 to 50 below Right. Yeah, that's gonna be like we we need to. I need to see some yeah, tests exactly. <laughs> before, right. uh, before we actually pull the trigger. <laughs> but but if they want to decide us up for some cold weather testing and some uh, some polar bear testing, we can yeah. put it through its paces. Well, Brandon, I look forward to seeing your your wolf video. Uh, I'll be anxiously waiting for that to uh, to get thrown up. And thank you very much for being patient with us, and thanks for coming on. Sorry that it didn't work out on the time when Mike was gone, but I think, you know, just the, the stories that you had for us tonight and, and just kind of hearing your passion and, and how your inspire wild media didn't come about by accident, just listening to you talk and, and communicate, you know, your, your feelings and emotions about why you do what you do. I think that's, it was very intentional and it was, uh, it was perfect. To be honest, you couldn't have a better name for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, great to be on, you guys. It's a pleasure, absolute uh, pleasure to be able to spend some time with you guys and have some good conversations and uh, be happy to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. We'll do it in the field, though, while we're watching beluga whales fly. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Only place to see it. All right. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.